Ron DeSantis calls for boots on the ground. Herschel Walker hears from an old friend. And it's a status quo debate in Texas. All on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add me to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 392 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. I became a certified, or certifiable, political junkie during the midterm elections of 1966. In the 56 years since, I can't tell you how many times I've said or written that this election, whatever year it was, is going to be the most significant of our lifetime. I never thought it was hyperbole. They were indeed crucial elections. But my goodness, look at what's at stake in 2022. Two completely different visions and priorities. Republicans are talking about crime and inflation and the border. Democrats are talking about abortion and guns and free elections. The GOP says it's a referendum on Biden. No, say the Dems, it's a referendum on Trump. The two parties are miles apart on nearly everything. And we haven't even talked about election deniers and the sanctity of the vote. With a month to go before the election, no one can say with any authority who's going to come out on top. History suggests a good night for the party out of power, in this case the Republicans, given the president's low approval numbers. But Democrats insist that the Supreme Court's overturning the road decision will be a turning point in their direction, with women coming out in droves to vote for their candidates. Nonsense, says the GOP, given that food prices are still skyrocketing. And OPEC's recent decision to curtail production almost guarantees that gas prices are going to shoot up as well. So much for that Biden fist bump. The Senate, currently at 50-50, with Kamala Harris holding the tie-breaking vote, could go either way. That's remarkable, as we are so close to the election. But it's true. I mean, who's ahead in the Ohio contest between Vance and Ryan? What about Nevada and Cortez Masto and Laxalt? Fetterman may have a slim lead in Pennsylvania, but what can we expect from his upcoming debate with Oz, where we will see what toll his stroke took on him? And how many bombshells from his past can Herschel Walker possibly take in his Georgia battle with Senator Warnock before voters say enough is enough? Or do they even care? Conventional wisdom says the GOP will win the House, making Kevin McCarthy the new Speaker. It would also mean Jim Jordan becomes the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. It will be a GOP without Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, or nearly all the Republicans who voted to impeach. But, not to worry, Marjorie Taylor Greene will get her committee assignments back. The message out of all this? Vote. You need to vote. Democrat, Republican, left-wing, right-wing, you have to make sure to vote. The stakes, as we've heard time and time again, are too high. So much is at stake. Trump stakes are the world's greatest stakes, and I mean that in every sense of the word. No, not those stakes. By the way, the second segment in this week's show is my conversation with Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about the Georgia Senate race. 
The interview was conducted before the latest headlines from Herschel Walker's past. A report from the Daily Beast saying that Walker, who opposes abortion with no exceptions, once paid an ex-girlfriend to have an abortion, by check no less, and followed up with a get-well card that he signed. This was in 2009. His son, Christian Walker, a 23-year-old conservative who's active on social media, slammed him as a liar. Writing on Twitter, Christian Walker said of his father, You're not a family man when you left us to bang a bunch of women, threatened to kill us, and had us move over six times in six months, running from your violence. Another tweet said, I don't care about someone who has had a bad past and takes accountability, but how dare you lie and act as though you're some kind of moral Christian upright man? You've lived the life of destroying other people's lives. How dare you? Yes, Family Values 101. For his part, Herschel Walker called the report a flat-out lie, but no Republican has broken with him. On a recent Daily Show with Trevor Noah, he showed clips of former House Speaker Newt Gingrich and former NRA spokesperson Dana Lash talking about Herschel Walker and why what he did really doesn't matter. He'll do more to change the Senate just by the sheer presence, by his confidence, by his deep commitment to Christ. He's been through a long, tough period. He had a lot of concussions coming out of football. He suffered PTSD. You're telling me Walker used his money to reportedly pay some skank for an abortion. I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. You know, you gotta love it when they say the quiet part out loud. I love it. Abortion is totally unforgivable unless I need to do it. In fact, in fact, what you're saying is, you're fine with an abortion if you need to win a Senate race, a Senate race, but you're not fine with a woman needing it to save her own life. That's what you're saying. The first thing Walker did after the news broke was walking into the First Baptist Church of Atlanta and he was greeted by a standing ovation. Morals are nice, I guess, but winning is paramount. The latest polls have his contest with Senator Warnock dead even. Isn't that something? You cheated, you lied, you said that you loved me. You cheated, you lied, you said that you want me. One of the more closely watched races for governor this year is in Texas. Part of it is because of Beto O'Rourke. A former congressman from El Paso, he ran a close race for the Senate against Ted Cruz in 2018 that delighted progressives around the country who saw great things for him in the future. But his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 went nowhere, and many predicted a similar fate this year when he decided to challenge Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican. But then, on May 24th, an 18-year-old walked into an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and fatally shot 19 students and two teachers. One month later, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the constitutional right to abortion. O'Rourke, who, unlike Abbott, favors strong gun safety measures and a woman's right to choose, was suddenly gaining in the polls. Would he become the first Texas Democrat since Ann Richards in 1990? 32 years ago, to win the governorship? 
Last Friday, the two candidates met in their only scheduled debate before the November election. James Barragon, a political reporter with the Texas Tribune, is here with his analysis. James, it's great having you on The Political Junkie. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And, you know, we all remember Beto O'Rourke during his presidential run declaring, Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. That's, that's fine and dandy, but you know, one would think that's not the kind of statement that's going to get you elected in Texas. But then came Uvalde. So I guess the obvious question is, how has gun violence shaped the race? Well, it's been one of the major topics. You know, the uh, last weekend we had a gubernatorial debate, the only one of the campaign uh, cycle. Um, and hours before, Beto O'Rourke stood with the families of some of the Uvalde victims um, who were calling on Governor Abbott to call a special session uh, to raise the age for buying an assault rifle from 18 to 21. It's been, it's been their persistent ask uh, for months, the four months since the shooting. Um, and so it's really shaped part of the uh, election cycle here. And obviously for Beto O'Rourke, that is a topic that is good for him politically, but it's also near and dear to his heart. Um, you'll remember that in 2019 there was a gunman uh, who opened fire on a Walmart um, in in El Paso, and he's been sort of that's what initially led to that comment of hell yes we're going to take your AK-47s and your AR-15s. But it certainly has been a challenge. I mean, that comment has come back to haunt him. Uh, the governor's people have not forgotten it, and they. Uh, bring it up as often as possible. I mean, this, after all, is Texas, where even Democrats uh, have guns and support gun rights. Um, and so it's been difficult for Beto O'Rourke to sort of thread the needle there of, hey, how can you square that comment that you made about being a gun-taking Democrat, essentially, uh, with the realities of how people view gun rights here in Texas? And then, as I said, it was the, the tragedy was followed by the Dobbs decision reverses Roe v. Wade, and how has that affected the race, if at all? Well, I think certainly, you know, that there, there was that, uh, that vote in Kansas about uh, trying to take away the right to an abortion out of the Constitution in, in Kansas, and Kansans roundly rejected that proposal. They said, we do want to have that, uh, the, the right to an abortion. Um, and so I think that mobilized Democrats around that time in August, and for Texas Democrats, they were hoping that that would materialize into some momentum for them heading into November. That does not seem to be the case. I think from the polls that we've seen here in Texas, people are still uh, following the general splits that we had seen even before the Dobbs decision, where it's sort of split halfway, 50-50. Um, and so I think that is a challenge. Democrats want to be talking about the issue. I think there certainly is hesitation from Republicans, even some moderate Republicans, about how far uh, abortion rights have been restricted in the state of Texas. But then they look at the candidates that are running uh, as Democrats uh, for elected office here in Texas, and they can't fully get behind them. So it's kind of a tricky situation for them, and it really hasn't materialized uh, as of yet um, from the polling we're seeing. But, you know, the polling, the only poll that matters, I guess, is in November. So people uh, might surprise us. I think Beto O'Rourke in particular is really going after young voters. Young women voters are very energized by this issue. And so who knows? We may see a surprise there in terms of how well he can do with those voters um, in November. 
And then I have to raise the the border crisis, which I guess it's fair to say that nobody, no president has been able to resolve. When Abbott sent two buses of migrants to Texas, uh, from from Texas to uh, Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in Washington, you know, Democrats around the country saw it as a stunt, a, a cruel use of human beings as political pawns. And of course, Abbott said, no, absolutely not. Um, how did that play in Texas? Well, most of the governor's policies on border security and immigration are very popular with voters. We, as policy wonks, may not like it because we say, hey, it, it's not actually solving the problem. As you stated, it, this, this has been a persistent issue for many years, and this is an act, they're not actually working with the for, federal government. There's no actual coordination, and so it's hard to see how it actually resolves anything other than bringing more attention to him. And, hey, it's during a, it's a campaign year, right? Voters really like it. I mean, the thing is that there is a situation at the border that has become untenable, particularly for uh, border area voters, but also even inland in cities like San Antonio, uh, where the migrants come through once they cross the border. And so it is a major concern for people here in Texas. Um, and, and the electorate, rightfully, uh, I think, is saying, hey, we've sort of had enough. We need somebody to do something. And the governor is capitalizing on that. Now, again, are these actual policy solutions? Probably not. We see the number of migrant crossings still being super high. We don't see any coordination with the federal government to um, to solve the situation. Matter of fact, there's actual, uh, I would say, um, animosity, I would say, between the state and the federal government in terms of trying to fix this issue. But nonetheless, for Abbott, it's a winning issue. Having National Guard uh, and DPS troopers down there is popular. Building the wall is even popular. Uh, The busing program is popular because people are saying, hey, we need to do something. And Abbott is the only guy saying, hey, here's all the things that I'm doing. And he's putting it out there front and center. Whereas for O'Rourke, it's much more difficult. He says he wants to have a humane approach to the immigration system and to these migrants coming um, looking for asylum. But he's out of office, so he can't do a whole lot. And all he can do is propose like the things that he would do as governor, um, which are limited because he would only be a state official, not a federal official. Okay, so now that we've uh, laid out the major issues, I think, uh, in the race, um, set the stage for last Friday's debate. Um, you know, what kind of audience? Who was watching at home? That that sort of stuff. Well, there was no audience. May be the most surprising thing for for your listeners. Um, you know, uh, Beto O'Rourke has said that he wanted an audience. He wanted uh, questions from the audience. Uh, there was hundreds of open seats at the auditorium where the event was held at the University of Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, but uh, it seems like Abbott's team didn't want an audience, um, and so there wasn't an audience. Um, the other part of this is that, hey, well, maybe there was an audience at home uh, watching this thing and looking out for the biggest issues and sort of maybe making up their mind. But guess what? It's a Friday night debate in the state of Texas. That's Friday Night Lights. Folks might remember the TV show. We've got uh, Texas high school football, which is pretty much a religion out here in Texas. <laughs> and so a lot of folks... Even some of the political science observers and professors that I regularly talk to for my stories said, I'm not going to be watching the debate. I'm going to be at my kid's game or, you know, (laughs) doing these things at the high school football game. So probably there was not as big of an audience as uh, you would expect. And that's all fine and dandy for Governor Abbott because he's got a pretty uh, solid lead in the polls. Um, And it's bad for Beto O'Rourke because 
he wanted to make the argument in the debate that uh, these last eight, seven years of Governor Abbott's rule have been a failed rule and that he hasn't delivered on issues like property taxes, on issues like stopping uh, gun violence. Um, but not that many people got to see it. You said abortion rights. I'm going to just play some tape from the from the debate about abortion rights uh, and, and gun safety and things like that. I want every parent out there to know that the lives of your children are more important to me than the NRA or any special interest or any other political consideration. I will prioritize them ahead of everything else, and we will take action and we will make progress. We'll bring Republicans, Democrats, independents alike together, and we'll get the job done where this governor has failed to do so. There will be other cities in the future that also will be on the receiving end of migrants because we will continue to have to move migrants because Joe Biden continues to allow more illegal immigrants to come into the state of Texas. This election is about reproductive freedom. If you care about this, you need to turn out and vote. I will fight to make sure that every woman in Texas can make her own decisions about her own body, her own future, and her own health care. And I will work with the legislature and my fellow Texans to return us to the standard that Texas women won in the first place, Roe versus Wade. That's the standard that answers your question. Uh, as, as it concerns uh, abortion, listen, Beto's position is the most extreme because he not only supports a abortion of a fully developed child to the very last second before birth, he's even against providing medical care for a baby who survives an abortion. He is for unlimited abortion at taxpayer expense. That's not true. Work, it's completely a lie. Um, I never said that, and, and no one thinks that in, in the state of Texas. He's saying this because he signed the most extreme abortion ban in America. No exception for rape, no exception for incest. It begins at conception, and it's taking place in a state that is at the epicenter of a maternal mortality crisis, thanks to Greg Abbott, three times as deadly for black women. I will fight to make sure that every woman makes her own decisions about her own body, her own future, and her own health care. That's what most of us, Republicans and Democrats in this state, believe. Was abortion and gun safety the key issues during the debate? Would you say they were? Yeah, I think so. And I think I think overall, I think there was a slight edge for Beto O'Rourke in the debate. I'll emphasize slight uh, because Governor Abbott also hit back on important issues like uh, crime and border security, where he was really, really strong on. You know, there's always the familiar questions asked after a debate. Uh, were, they, were there any gaps or gotcha moments, uh, uh, calling out winners and losers? You said that O'Rourke may have benefited slightly uh, from the debate, but but enough to, you know, move the needle or change the dynamic in the race, do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think that anybody who watched that debate has changed their mind. Basically, if you went in there supporting Abbott, you're going to leave that debate supporting Abbott. If you went in there supporting O'Rourke, you're going to leave supporting O'Rourke. And there's that slim number of independent voters that maybe could have made up their mind. But um, I'm not sure. In Texas, most of the independent voters that we have here lean Republican, lean conservative. So it's it's a high bar for Beto O'Rourke to sort of um, step over um, and also given his past statements. But I do think that he had the slight edge 
But the governor also achieved his uh, goals in that he hit him on border security. He hit him on crime. He said, hey, we're the number one business state. If you want to keep being number one, reelect me. And most importantly, he didn't have any gaps. He didn't have any viral moments. It's all status quo business as usual. And business as usual is him having a five to seven point lead in the polls, which is all fine and dandy for the governor one month out from the election. And one thing I didn't mention is is, is how Texans see uh, uh, President Biden. Uh, often in midterm elections, how the president is being seen can affect down down ballot races. Uh, what are what is Biden's numbers looking like in Texas? Biden's numbers in Texas do not look good. I think that a big part of that is obviously the border security problem. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it, di- it doesn't seem to tie down individual uh, Congress people running, uh, running for office. They seem to uh, voters seem to differentiate between uh, President Biden and his policies uh, in D.C. and the elected officials here in Texas. Although I will say that during the debate, Governor Abbott kept sort of making that link, that connection with if you vote for Beto O'Rourke, he's going to bring Biden policies. Beto supports the uh, Biden gun policies. Beto supports Biden border security policies. So he was trying to make that connection. And I think for Beto O'Rourke, um, his own his own problems with immigration and gun issues um, are going to follow him uh, as well. Not that we need to predict the result of the race uh, at this point, but Having lost a, a bid for the Senate, having lost a bid for the presidency, and now the, the possible likelihood of losing the race for governor, what's left for Bitter O'Rourke? Well, you know, who knows what happens in November? We do have lots of uh, new voters here. We do. There is some sort of double thinking about, hey, do we want to stick with Republicans on issues like uh, gun violence and abortion? Uh, but there's no, there's no question, really, that Beto O'Rourke has had a meteoric rise here in Texas, that he sort of shifted how people think about Democrats and shifted, um, you know, their uh, likelihood of, of winning in Texas. I mean, this is the closest race that we've had here in a long, long time. The fact that people are even talking about it being competitive in the single digits um, is is very different for, for Democrats in Texas. And who knows what happens in November. But if he doesn't end up winning, I don't um, I don't see him going away. Um, but, it you know, it will be young clear sort of what what happens next for him. But I definitely don't see him going away. I see him staying very involved. But who knows? We'll find out after November. James Barragone is a political reporter with the Texas Tribune. James, it was great having you on the program. Thank you so much. It was great being here. I like guns. I like the way they look. I like the shiny steel and the polished wood. I don't care if they're big or small. Therefore, say, well, I want them all. I like guns. I like guns. I like guns. On paper, the Senate candidacy of Herschel Walker, Republican of Georgia, should be dead in the water. A former University of Georgia football hero and Heisman Trophy winner, Walker has made gaffe after gaffe after gaffe on the campaign trail, like the time he explained his opposition to the Green New Deal. We... In America, have something to clean this air and clean this water of anybody in the world. Yes. That's right. yes. So what we do is we're going to put from the Green New Deal millions, like billions of dollars cleaning our good air up. So all of a sudden, China and India ain't putting nothing 
is there cleaning that situation up. So it, all that bad air is still there. But since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China, bad air. So when China gets our good air, that bad air gotta move. So it moves over to our good air space. Got that? Well, if Walker's science dissertation wasn't enough, there was the time he told podcast host Glenn Beck that he had a dry mist that could kill the coronavirus. Do you know right now I have something that can bring you into a building that will clean you from COVID as you walk through this, this dry mist? As you walk through the door, it will kill any COVID on your body. EPA, FDA approved. When you leave, it will kill the virus as you leave this here product. Then I have something, you can go and spray down this product. Do you know they don't want to talk about that? They don't want to hear about that. Then there was his solutions to gun violence in the wake of the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, which starts out with Walker talking on Fox News about when Cain killed Abel. You know, Cain killed Abel. You know, and uh, you know, and that's the problem that we have. And I said, what we need to do is look into how we can stop those things. You know, he talked about doing a disinformation. What about getting a department that can look at young men that's looking at uh, women that's looking at uh, just social media? What about doing that, looking into things like that, and we can stop that that way? But yet they want to just continue to talk about taking away your constitutional rights. And, and I, I think there's more things we need to look into. And, of course, there was this famous explanation for evolution. I'll tell you something else I heard, and I think about this, because at one time, science said man came from apes. Did it not? If that is true, why are there still apes? Think about it. And when you add the fact that he claims to have worked in law enforcement and had been an FBI agent, which he didn't and he wasn't, said he graduated from the University of Georgia, which he didn't, at the top of his class, no less, plus the fact that he once put a gun to the head of his now ex-wife, one would think that what you're left with is a hopeless Senate candidate. That is not the case. Throughout the campaign, polls have shown Walker running very close to, even with, and even slightly ahead of Raphael Warnock, the Democratic incumbent who came to the Senate in the January 5th, 2021 runoff, one day before the insurrection at the Capitol. To help explain this, I'm turning once again to Greg Bluestein, the political reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Oh, it's so great to be back. Well, it's always great to have you because somehow Georgia seems to be ground zero for politics. It certainly was in 2020, and, and it certainly looks like it's going to be that case, uh, the case this year. And let me just start with one obvious uh, observation. Both, both candidates are African-American, but, but is it fair to say that that may be the only thing the two have in common? That's a good point. Uh, they really might be the only thing the two have in common, um, aside from also both having Georgia roots, um, both being born in uh, – uh, Herschel Walker's from Wrightsville and, and Senator Warnock is from Savannah um, – but that might be it. They have huge divides on pretty much every major political issue. And, of course, they have very uh, big differences in their personal backgrounds and their, their reasons for running for office as well. Not long ago, Mitch McConnell said that if the Republicans failed to recapture the Senate in November, it would be because of candidate quality. 
And, you know, while he didn't mention names, the media has have suggested that Walker was one of those candidates he was probably thinking of. But here's my question. I mean, if Walker is not a look, he's if he's not a perfect candidate, we have, I think we both agree that he's far from that. He has a real chance of winning. And the obvious question is why? No, it's a great question. And look, you could also kind of flip flip it on its head. You could say, how is Senator Warnock still in a race in Georgia where the political climate is so tilting against uh, Democrats? When you have the name, you know, the, the next door race, you have the governor's race with Governor Kemp, a Republican, in such a big lead over Stacey Abrams. And I think there's two reasons why. One is that Herschel Walker is not your typical Republican candidate, right? There's a significant number of Republicans who are saying in polls and in interviews, they just cannot vote for him. Um, they're either siding with a third-party candidate, some of them are holding their nose and voting for Senator Warnock, and some of them are skipping the race altogether. So that's one reason it's making this race closer. But the other reason is because Senator Warnock is a unique kind of unicorn of a candidate. He is uh, an elite fundraiser. He, he, he might be the top fundraiser in all of Congress this cycle when it's all said and done. Um, but he's also uniquely adept at navigating the political divides in Georgia. He's a hero to many liberals, but he's also attracting swing voters. Um, he's not tying himself to Joe Biden. He speaks more about working with Ted Cruz on the campaign trail than working with the president. And he talks about how he's doing whatever it takes to help Georgians, even if that means working with, with Republicans who the base might hate. So that, that is resonating, and that is giving some of these swing voters, some of these independents, even some conservatives who might not like um, Herschel Walker, might, might worry about him in the office. It's giving them a home with, with Senator Warnock. You mentioned uh, his, re- re- his relationship or lack of same with Joe Biden. Uh, Biden narrowly won the carried the state in 2020. What are his numbers looking like now in the state? Oh, it's rough. He's at 37 percent in the latest Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll um, and uh, clearly underwater. And, you know, it's interesting because you're seeing candidates react in very different ways. As I said, Senator Warnock, he is keeping Joe Biden at arm's length. He's saying, hey, I, w- I worked with Joe Biden when it's helpful, when it's useful for Jordans, but I but I'm more than happy to uh, I'm more than willing to go against him. And he talks about pressuring Joe Biden to be more aggressive on student debt relief, talks about pressuring the White House uh, to keep open military installations that were on the chopping block. And again, he talks about working with Republicans who are sort of counter to everything that Joe Biden stands for. Um, Stacey Abrams, completely different tack. Uh, she is embracing President Biden. She is talking about his, uh, you know, her support for him, saying gladly that she'd, uh, she'd, she'd campaign with him should he come down to Georgia. Um, she is definitely kind of leaning more to the left to try to consolidate Democratic support. Isn't it funny that she has to consolidate Democratic support, considering the fact that from the moment uh, Stacey Abrams was narrowly defeated in her 2018 bid for governor, the national press and liberal groups everywhere have counted, have, you know, have basically been monitoring every move she makes, every statement she makes, uh, because they were so excited that she would run again in 2022. And yet, as you point out, um, that race not, may not even be close. Yeah, and, you know, you never count Stacey Abrams out, and certainly she believes that the polls are much tighter than they show, especially if a, a number of, of women, if, if, if more women 
expanding a Georgia electorate. Georgia, about 55% of the electorate in Georgia is typically women. If you get to 57, 58%, who knows what sort of outcome that can bring. Um, but really, you're right. I mean, you know, we've been watching Stacey Abrams every move since she had that famous non-concession speech. She flirted with the run for U.S. Senate. She certainly was uh, talked about as a running mate for Joe Biden. And to no one's surprise here in Georgia, she decided to launch a rematch against Governor Kemp. But she's struggling with the base in particular. Um, She's made no bones about it. She talks about how she needs more black support, uh, particularly from black men who tend to be disproportionately uh, underrepresented in the Georgia electorate. They tend not to vote at nearly the same numbers as black women, white women, white men. Um, And that's a huge concern for her, right? The poll shows she's at 80 percent of of support with black voters, but she needs to be more like 90, 95 percent in order to have a a fighting chance against Governor Kemp. And and there's there's a few reasons why she might be lagging in some support. But one is that Governor Kemp has a record. You know, Democrats might not love it, but he has something to run on. It's something that he did not really have to run on in 2018 when no one knew how either of them would perform in Georgia's top office. Number two, she's been attacked you know, for the better part of a decade, um, you know, since 2015, 2016, when it looked like she was probably going to run for governor and she was the, the state for, foremost Democratic official during that time. Um, you know, if you were running for dog catcher in Morgan County as a Republican, you were attacking Stacey Abrams. And so a lot of that negative is starting to really to bleed in uh, to the general electorate. And it's, it's hard for her to overcome high negatives, even from some within her own party. You know, I'm pretty fascinated hearing that that number that 80 percent of African-Americans supporting uh, uh, Abram, you know, which is a much lower number than I would have expected. And you also talked about Kemp's record. But Kemp's record also includes uh, signing legislation that basically curtails voting, makes it more difficult to voting uh, to vote. And that, I assume, would be a, a key issue that could motivate black voters. No. You know, there's other issues, too. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because in 2018, voting rights was at the center of this entire election campaign. And now it's certainly still talked about, but it's definitely not at the center, right? Now it's other measures that Kemp signed that are more at the center, at least from the Democratic point of view. Um, anti-abortion restrictions. Governor Kemp uh, vowed to enact the toughest abortion restrictions in the nation in 2018, and he signed them into law in 2019. Um, restrictions that essentially ban most abortions as early as six weeks, which is before many women even know they're pregnant. And of course, now it's gone into effect now that the Dobbs decision has come out. Uh, Also permissive gun laws. He's also passed legislation that kind of brings culture wars um, to the class, to the classroom in a a more, (laughs) in a more poignant way, I guess, is the good way to put it. Um, So a number of issues that have really energized Democrats and Stacey Abrams hopes will start to galvanize and unify her base. Um, but at the same time, you know, even as Kemp rails against the, what he calls the Biden Abrams economy, Georgia's economy is more or less humming along low jobless rates. There's some wage growth. Um, there's new economic development deals in Metro Atlanta and elsewhere that give Kemp and his allies something to crow about. Uh, a niche magazine just named Georgia the number one place in the nation to do business for like the ninth year running. And um, two major auto manufacturers have both called Georgia, decided to, to plant big expansions in Georgia over the last year. One Rivian electric vehicle in northeast Georgia, another Hyundai um, would build electric vehicles and conventional engines down in Savannah. So these are going to bring thousands of jobs, and they give Kemp sort of a counterpoint to Abrams' argument that his policies are undercutting the state's business reputation. 
you know, you mentioned abortion rights and you mentioned gun control and uh, or gun safety. There's a there's a there was a gun control group that has this new ad attacking Walker. Just how extreme is Herschel Walker? He opposes a woman's right to make her own health decisions. He wants to ban abortion, even in cases of rape or incest, or to save a mother's life. And he opposes common-sense gun safety laws that save lives. Siding against law enforcement, he'd even make it easier for dangerous people to carry guns in public with no questions asked. Herschel Walker, threatening our health and safety. His extreme agenda puts us all at risk. You know, Greg, I found it interesting that an ad, an ad focused on the right to an abortion and gun safety, um, which to me seems unusual topics for a Senate race in the Deep South. Yeah, you know, it wasn't so long ago that Democrats here in Georgia ran as NRA Democrats. You know, it was sort of the third rail. They didn't want to touch anything to do with guns or abortion. If they were pro-abortion, uh, they have they were supportive of abortion rights. They didn't talk about it much, right? Um, certainly, you know, even in 2014, the Democratic nominee for governor, he, he, he voted for gun expansions and said he was an NRA Democrat. Um, you've seen that sort of flipped on its head with Democrats embracing not only abortion rights, but also gun restrictions, firearms restrictions. And this has become front and center. You know, in our polls and in other polls, economy and inflation and high cost of living – that's all the number one issue. But the number two and number three issue in many of these polls are both abortion and guns. And Democrats feel like if they have an avenue to victory, it is by kind of uh, keying into voters' concerns about both of those factors. Although I have seen uh, another issue that is being play- playing well in polls is crime. And I've seen Republican candidates blast uh, Democratic candidates, especially African-American candidates, that they're soft on crime and they're linked with AOC and the squad and things like that. Any evidence you're seeing of that in uh, Georgia? Oh, for sure. I mean, crime rates uh, are being uh, – Democrats are being blamed for crime rates in Atlanta and, and other cities around the state. Um, you hear the defund the police mantra being surfaced over and over again because Stacey Abrams – uh, was asked about shifting resources away from law enforcement at this during the uh, the 2020 protests for racial justice, and she indicated that she would. Uh, the rest of the interview was kind of cut off where she she explained her more her position. But part of that interview, it was was featured in ads by Governor Kemp uh, during the earlier part of of the campaign. So it's becoming it, it has become a major factor, um, and Democrats have f- tried to figure out different ways to counter it. Stacey Abrams has called for. Um, raises for certain law enforcement officials so she can say essentially that she's trying to fund the police instead of defunding them. Every Democrat in Georgia who's running for any sort of office has essentially come out against the defund the police idea. And um, and, and Senator Warnock um, helped engineer a candidate named Charlie Bailey, who looked like he might lose a race for a down ticket office for attorney general. Um, Senator Warnock and other Democrats were involved in encouraging him to switch races to run instead of a lieutenant governor. And the reason why that's important is Charlie Bailey is a former prosecutor in Fulton County who went after gangs. And so Democrats hope that having him on the ticket, having, you know, the only prosecutor from any party on this ticket to be able to say, hey, I've personally gone after these criminals that you're, you're, you're saying we're soft on will help inoculate them from that, uh, those attacks. You know, it's interesting to hear that uh, Kemp, it seems to be taking credit or receiving credit uh, for the upturn in the economy. But when there's crime, it's the Democrats' fault. It's interesting, isn't it? 
That is a great point because look, we all see one paycheck. We only really see one, or we only see one bank account. I should say, right? Um, we only see one economy. We don't. There's no difference between a Georgia economy to, to many voters and the national economy. Um, and so, Kemp is trying to walk that line. The, the national policies are destructive, and he's doing his best in Georgia to kind of cushion voters here and Georgians here from that blow. That's his argument. Um, and of course, Democrats say, "Hey." You know, you and other Republicans opposed a lot of the measures that, that are being passed in, in Congress to help uh, get us out of this sort of mess. Um, you know, and Republicans in Georgia uniformly opposed the Coronavirus Relief Act, the American Rescue Plan, I should say, um, in early 2021, opposed the infrastructure bill um, from last year, and also opposed the Inflation Reduction Act that recently passed. Uh, and yet, how Georgia law is, is, is set up, the governor also gets unilateral control over how to dispense some of those funds. So he's been out, you know, announcing big, huge checks um, from infrastructure dollars and from American Relief Fund Act dollars that he personally opposed. But he's able to say, hey, here's $130 million to bolster school security or here's uh, $69 million to, to, to expand broadband. All these issues that give him some, some, uh, some juice in an election year. It's like Ron DeSantis in Florida opposing um, relief from hurricanes, except when it hits Florida, right? Except in Florida, yeah. You know, a while back, Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson, he offered this header. If Herschel Walker wins in Georgia, America will have lost its mind. I mean, I remember wincing at that headline, but do Georgia voters, first of all, one, how would you describe the mind of Georgia voters? And two, does Georgia understand what's at stake, the significance of the, the Warnock-Walker Senate race that could determine which party controls the Senate? Uh, for your latter point, yeah. I mean, Georgia is now used to being in the center of the white-hot spotlight in 2018 and 2020, 2021, you know, when a billion dollars were spent on the runoffs, essentially. Um, so Georgians get it, right? Um, Georgians understand the importance of, of the election and that, once again, Senate control could really boil down whatever happens here in Georgia. Um, it's hard to understate Herschel Walker's appeal to voters here. And I always kind of tell this story, but I grew up with parents who could care less about, about football. Um, and yet I grew up, and I grew up after Herschel Walker, you know, was playing at UGA, University of Georgia, but I still grew up hearing stories about his legendary athletic skills. Um, I have Democratic friends who named their dogs after him, whose garage code and security code passwords are his football number, 34, right? I mean, his people, uh, before he ran for office, people of all sorts of political persuasions would, would you know, act like three-year-olds to try to get a picture with them or a signature or, or a selfie. So, I mean, he has, he's not just an athlete in Georgia. He is, it's, it's, it's not inaccurate to call him a legend. Um, that, that's the sort of appeal he has. Uh, and add to that, the fact that, uh, you know, on the campaign trail, and he's gotten much better, he, he still has gaffes, he still has blunders. I don't think that's going to change. Um, but he connects with voters. He makes voters um, feel safe. Uh, he, he also kind of gives permission on the campaign trail, and he will tell a mostly white crowd that Democrats are to blame for uh, furthering the idea of racism. He'll, he'll essentially say that Democrats want you to apologize for your whiteness, and that resonates in some of these, especially these rural crowds I go to, where it's kind of the backbone of his strategy is to drive up rural turnout and ring out as many Republican votes as you can get in sparsely populated counties, but you get enough of them together, 
And that was Governor Kemp's path to victory in 2018. He's hoping to replicate it in a sense. So he is um, he has his own unique appeal. And when I talk to voters, not just about his blunders, but frankly, the bigger issue here in Georgia is his um, his history of, of violence and erratic behavior involving women, including his ex-wife, Cindy Grossman. You can't turn on a, a TV or the radio without hearing Cindy Grossman in her own words from about 15 years ago talk about how Herschel Walker um, threatened her with violence and pointed a gun at her head. So that's become a major issue. But, you know, when I ask his supporters about those types of issues, they almost uniformly say, hey, you know, he, he's atoned for it. Um, he is, uh, you know, he, he, has, he, he suffers from mental health illness. He says he suffers from disos- disassociative identity disorder and that he's, he's you know, sought treatment um, to make things, to make his mental health uh, uh, you know, treatment better. So they kind of say he's deserving of a second chance. You know, it's almost like all the issues that we're raising here and all the, the gaffes I played earlier in the show, I mean, it almost seems like nothing matters anymore. And that's not just the Georgia campaign, but Democrats are voting for the Democratic candidate. Republicans are backing the Republican candidate and try to convince them otherwise, you know, by by showing them inconsistencies and, and things like that. They, it doesn't seem to matter, right? It seems like their minds are made up if they're a D or an R. Yeah. I mean, look, there is a certain probably 45 percent of the electorate will no matter vote for a Republican. Maybe 45 percent of the electorate will no matter vote for a Democrat. There is this um, kind of retrenchment. But there are there are some Republican voters, uh, especially in the suburbs, who have indicated in polls that they will not be supporting um, Herschel Walker. Again, they might not vote at all. It's not they're not necessarily going to go back Warnock. They might skip the race. They might vote for a libertarian which increases the likelihood of a runoff in December to decide this whole thing. Um, but there are, and I went out, uh, and I've talked to many of them for stories I've written, but this is just an anecdote. I went out with some Republican door knockers um, to write about the grassroots strategy for the GOP this cycle, because they're kind of playing catch-up with Democrats. And I was in a, an affluent neighborhood in East Cobb, so just northwest of, of the city of Atlanta, and the second home we got to was a group of canvassers, and they're kind of reading from a script. You know, it looks like you're a reliable Republican voter. Do you plan to vote straight Republican down the ticket? And before the door knocker could even finish, um, the gentleman at the door said, no, I will vote every Republican except Herschel Walker. I just can't do it. He wasn't sure who he'd vote for instead, but he just, you know, and that, that, that's emblematic of something that's really concerning to Herschel Walker. He's going farther to the right now. You know, rather than trying to appeal to the middle, rather than trying to go after the same spring voters that Raphael Warnock is pursuing, he's going further to the right because he needs to consolidate his base. He needs to shore up that Republican support because there's a significant number of voters who just say they, they can't vote for him. You know, you mentioned, I had forgotten about this, but you mentioned about a third-party candidate. And I remember, I guess it was White Fowler who lost his re-election bid in 1992 because uh, he lost in that runoff, right? He lost in the runoff, and then... Warnock and John Ossoff, the two two Democrats who won the two runoffs in 2021, they advanced to a runoff because of a third party candidate. If, given the, that the fact that the polls show that the race is so close, do you think that, that the third party candidate can draw enough to force a runoff? And that would be, I think it's likely. Wow. Yeah, I think it's likely right now. I mean, usually the third party candidates get one, maybe two percent of the vote. Which you know, which which only matters, only forces runoff if the races are really close. 
And almost, you know, in 2018, you almost saw that with Stacey Abrams versus Kemp when uh, only a, a point and a half separated them, the two of them. But in this case, you know, you might only – the Libertarian in the governor's race might only get a percent. But if a Libertarian in the Senate race gets two or three points, um, then that, that, you know, dramatically increases the likelihood of a runoff. And I can tell you this, most, most of the, you know, the folks close to the two, um, to two candidates are, are now at least bracing, if not expecting, a runoff. So they're, they already have one eye towards December, and in a December runoff, all, you know, all bets are off. Like you just don't know what could happen because you might see more of those Republicans. First of all, it would be a smaller electorate, right? That, that, that electorate tends to be whiter and older, so it tends to help Republicans. But in 2021, Democrats won statewide runoffs for the first time in like modern history um, because of all the focus on the race. But if Senate control is hanging in the balance again, you might see some more Republicans kind of come home, say, hey, I don't like Herschel, but – I also want Mitch McConnell to, to be in charge of the U.S. Senate. Um, so a lot of different, you know, X factors could come into play if there is an, yet another Senate runoff in Georgia. So much for a December vacation for Greg Bluestein, right? Well, at least it'll be earlier. I will say that the previous law in Georgia was nine-week runoffs, which meant that our Thanksgivings, our Christmases, our Hanukkahs, our New Year's, everything was ruined. Um, but... Uh, but this cycle, um, it's now back to a four-week runoff, so that only means our Thanksgivings are ruined. Let me end with this question about, about debates. Um, uh, you know, Herschel Walker famously, famously refused to debate his Republican rivals during the primaries. Now he's agreed to debate Warnock on October 14th in Savannah. I mean, I always think there's too much focus on debates, but again, if the race is dead even— and the debate is coming three and a half weeks before the election. The debate could be crucial, yes? It could be really important. It's going to get kind of, you know, to some at least presidential-level attention because it's the only debate in a very close Senate race that is being watched by a national audience. So uh, we're expecting dozens of reporters to head down to Savannah, um, kind of pouring over every word that's said. And Herschel Walker's already trying to downplay expectations, saying that he's just a country boy, you know, that—, that that he's going up against a skilled speaker like Senator Warnock, who who has spent you know a large part of his adult life um, in in roles you know in speaking roles as pastor of, of Ebenezer Baptist Church and other churches before that. Um, so he's already trying to go do the old-fashioned lower the expectations um, technique. And sometimes, um, no, sometimes that works. I mean, remember Sarah Palin yeah. against Joe Biden? Everybody expected her to fall on her face, and she she did the complete opposite. Exactly. I mean, you know, if he holds his own in a sense, or if he just kind of, you know, goes after a few predictable attack lines, there'll be some who, you know, think, see that as a victory. Or frankly, if he just emerges um, with, without falling on his face, some could just say, hey, he did what he had to do. Um, I think that his competitive juices are flowing. You remember, he's a, you know, he's a world-class, not just a football player, but he also was an Olympian, a martial artist fighter. He has all sorts of his, uh, you know, different sports in his background, and I think this gets him. Um, this, you know, the, the Democrats calling calling him a coward and questioning his manhood, essentially saying you two chicken um, to show up for a debate. They literally would send folks dressed as chickens to his campaign events. I think that that factors into it too, because uh, you know I don't think I don't think Walker plays too kindly to this. And look, there will be some people who haven't been following the race maybe, who might just think that him getting up on stage is a victory. 
But I think folks in Georgia are really going to be looking at where he stands on certain policies. You know, it's been hard uh, for a while. He had what we call the velvet rope campaign, very, very little involvement, um, very few events in public. That's changed. But still, so many voters don't know much of him beyond what they see in campaign ads and maybe, you know, what they read in the paper or, or see on TV very briefly. He's not his stances are not well known. So this will be a really good opportunity for Georgians to hear more about where he stands on the issues that affect our daily lives. Although at the same time, though, if Walker is indeed running, first of all, do you, do you agree with the polls that show it like almost dead even? And two, if Walker is indeed running even with Warnock, well, I was going to say, why have a debate at all? Why not just, you know, take your chances and, you know, avoid the possibility of an embarrassment? Because, I mean, I've watched, Warn- I've watched Walker speak throughout this campaign, and a lot of times you need a Chiron on the, on the screen to understand what he's saying. But, I mean, he's taking a big risk. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, in a sense, so is Warnock, right? I mean, he wanted multiple debates. He wanted three debates, um, and he's only getting into one. And you want three debates because, you you know, just in case one goes a little bit awry or one doesn't go the way you want, you want to have a chance to kind of bounce back um, and, and, and have more, more, you know, more, more chances of sound bites and more chances of cornering your opponent in an uncomfortable situation. But at the end, Warnock decided that one debate was, be- one debate was better than none at all. And I think Walker, I think the competitive part really did factor into this. I mean, you know, I, I don't think personally he liked being – called the chicken and, and, and being questioned about what, where he stood on the debate. But I think secondly, they also decided that this race is so close that it made sense to them. Because if, if either one of them was up by five or ten, you know, there wouldn't be this push for a debate as much. You know, they, they would have more – the, the frontrunner would have more to lose. But that's why I believe these polls, because the candidates and the campaigns believe these polls. They really do think it is neck and neck. You know, Warnock might have a one or two point edge one week and Walker might have a one or two point edge the other week. But really, it's looking so close. And with the libertarian in the, in the, in the mix, um, it's all pointing to, to a runoff. Greg Bluestein is a political reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Greg, I'm, wow, I don't know what to say. I mean, you have a nationally watched Senate race, a nationally watched gubernatorial race. And to top it off, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, life doesn't get better than this, does it? Uh, yeah, I think we were saying it earlier. It's busy, but it's good. And what's new? Busy for a Georgia political reporter is nothing strange anymore. Greg, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Hypocrite, you dirty hypocrite. You're gonna pay the price someday. Hypocrites, all of you We're ending the program this week with a chat with Alan Fram, who is retiring from the Associated Press after some four decades of covering Congress. It just so happens that Alan and I have a lot in common. We're both born in the Bronx. We're both Yankee fans. High fly ball, deep left. And we both have spent the better part of a career once loving the institution of Congress, but no longer. I'm hoping that by no longer being restrained by his employment by the AP, he might share with us some deep secrets about the House and Senate. We'll see. Meanwhile, 
Alan Fram, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, and I can't say I no longer love Congress. I still love it. It's just that I, uh, in, in the last few years I covered it, I found it increasingly uh, heartbreaking to cover because of the uh, evolution that we've all seen in recent years. Well, uh, we're going to talk about that, but I agree with you completely. It's the evolution. I mean, I, you know, I love the history and the lore and the, the great giants who, you know, once roamed the face of the earth, but now it's just so... So, I don't know what disheartening. I guess is the best word. Yes, I I, I agree with that term. Um, it's it's long been a place of uh, sharp elbows, um, some bitter disputes, um, people who uh, can't stand each other, but who somehow usually long learn to get along because it behooves them to do that. Compromise is not only rare, but in some quarters a, a dirty word, and uh, the place which could. Which still turn, churns out uh, significant legislation every now and then um, is increasingly dysfunctional, and uh, it's at the point where, when Congress avoids a government shutdown or a federal default, they congratulate themselves over an accomplishment. When in fact, that's just sort of a bare bones bottom line of what they should be doing uh, at the least. Well, that's one of the stories that I just glaze over every time there's a there's, we're coming to an emergency or a deadline that the, the government is about to shut down. Miraculously, they always come up with a solution. And, you know, I roll my eyes and say, here we go again. Why even read these stories about coming to this deadline when suddenly they always seem to come through? I mean, the rare time they shut it down, but it's not one of my favorite congressional stories. I agree. Yeah. Anyway, first things first, most importantly, I think, uh, I read that you were born in the Bronx and that you had been a vendor at Yankee Stadium. So I hope I was And Madison Square Garden, yes. Oh, so I hope I wasn't taking liberties by calling you a Yankees fan. No, I absolutely uh, was a, am uh, a Yankees fan. Uh, but, but is it also fair to say that you were once a big fan of Congress but no longer are? Well, I am a I'm rooting for them, but it's just that they're a little harder to root for. I see too many things that happen and that don't happen that I find, as you said, dispiriting. Congress is designed to be a place of compromise. The framers of the Constitution set it up that way. And major American political parties are designed to uh, appeal to the middle, because usually uh, that's the way you win general elections. But you know, as you know, uh, with uh, the increasing sophistication of uh, uh, redistricting uh, software, uh, House districts can be uh, redesigned every 10 years to conform to the sentence um, on a house-by-house -house basis. So I don't know the statistics, but of the 435 House seats, all but a few dozen of them are simply not competitive. And uh, in part because of the self-sorting of voters with so many Democrats and liberal-leaning people living in coastal states and more conservative Republican folks living uh, uh, in the central part of the country, uh, increasingly, many state general elections for Senate, for example, are no longer really competitive. So both parties, uh, unfortunately, have evolved to the point where the uh, real election is the primary. And that gives the incentive uh, that pushes the political incentive to me in the wrong direction. It makes 
Democrats, uh, Democratic candidates in primaries want to be as liberal as possible, and it makes Republican candidates want to be not only as conservative as possible, but these days as loyal to former President Trump as possible. And that tends to produce lawmaker, uh, two political parties in Congress whose members increasingly come from the extremes of each party. Not a good formula, if you ask me, for compromise. And, you know, these days it's just not a good formula for uh, moving the country forward and, uh, frankly, uh, holding on to uh, democratic uh, assumptions and institutions that we've all lived with, that the country's lived with for two centuries. Can you can you look back and tell me when, when you think things started to change? You know, I, I, I can, but this would just be from my limit, relatively limited perspective. Um, I had covered Congress a few years uh, when, uh, in 1994, Republicans uh, took control of the House for the first time in 40 years, and they were led by Newt Gingrich, who had been a uh, backbencher, but whose influence within the Republican conference gradually grew. And he uh, and his uh, followers were increasingly uh, frustrated with Bob Michaels' uh, style. He was more accommodating, less confrontational. But Gingrich was a master of confrontation. Uh, There were uh, plenty of focus groups and polls that helped uh, him uh, figure out uh, words that would rile up voters, you know, calling – I can't remember all the adjectives he used, but they were pretty – strong and sharp. And to me, at that point, politics began taking a turn towards the bitter. Um, Having said that, I always try to um, bite my tongue when I hear myself sounding like a geezer. You know, back in my day, it was okay until such and such happened. 1994, Alan, 1994 was yesterday. I mean, it wasn't that (laughs) long ago. But you know something, but there was an argument to be made that, that the Democrats' 40 years of power had started to wear thin and, and Republicans were offering something new, right? I mean, even liberal Republicans I spoke to back then said Gingrich was the guy, not Bob Michael, but Gingrich was the guy who could get us out of the wilderness. And he did. Yeah. And then, uh, ironically, um, uh, in 1998, uh, his own Republican conference, including Some of the most conservative uh, confrontational members had grown disillusioned with him because during that year, uh, he struck a a budget compromise with then-President Clinton, and conservative uh, Republicans were furious that he had cut a deal with Bill Clinton, of all people. Um, Gingrich, uh, you know, led his party out of the wilderness, and then after leading uh, the House for several years, quickly learned that you can't govern as a bomb thrower, or at least it's very hard to do that. Uh, There comes a time, uh, particularly at a time of divided government, when the Democrat Clinton was in the White House, when if if you want to keep the government functioning and if you want Congress to address real-world problems, you've got to compromise. And I remember sitting watching what I thought was going to be yet another boring speech late one night in the House, and Gingrich gets up and starts lambasting his own Republicans as for being members of the Perfectionist Caucus, which was, a to me, a hugely uh, ironic and almost a touching moment because it really amply illustrated the reality of governing and how that can clash with ideology. Well, you recently wrote at the time in 1994, and I, I remember this so well, uh, when the Republicans had just won the House, uh, the GOP leader Bob Michael was retiring 
But, you know, he was on the floor praising the outgoing Democratic speaker, Tom Foley, who had been defeated for re-election. But right when Michael was offering a resolution praising Foley for his leadership, Foley did him one better. The chair would, uh, chair would like to ask uh, my distinguished Republican colleague if he would take the chair. I'm happy to yield to the distinguished speaker. Will the gentleman please take the chair? There was genuine affection between the the two men. And and, and just as importantly, there was respect and trust. And that respect, there there are many instances today of uh, affection uh, across party lines, but there are fewer instances of respect and few, very few instances of trust. And I, I, I wonder if today a leader of one party in the majority in the House would even feel comfortable handing the gavel to the leader of the other party, even for a moment, because who knows whether you can trust that person to uh, do something that's chaotic and unexpected. But it was a real moment that, to me, uh, underlined the um, the, the bipartisan uh, uh spirit of cooperation and, uh, as I said, respect and affection that existed back then. And that's a real contrast to today. You know, you talk about bipartisanship and when members of Congress would put aside uh, their differences. And, of course, you know, I remember, we all remember the days after 9-11 and the shooting of Gabby Giffords when members of Congress from both parties seemed to have a common interest but n- neither one of those moments lasted long. Yeah, there, there are moments when uh, the two parties can draw together, uh, be drawn together. And even today, uh, just over the last few months, you know, we have seen compromises on some fairly important bills. You've, you've seen history being made probably at a slower rate than, than many people desire, but you've seen more women and more blacks, more people of color coming into office. Yes, I have, um, and it's been a, a marked uh, change. I don't remember what the statistics were. And, of course, uh, women in particular are still way underrepresented in Congress compared to their 51% or so uh, portion of the proportion of the population. Um, minority membership has uh, grown uh, significantly, and not just uh, membership, but uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, African-American, is the number three ranking House Democrat. Um, Hakeem Jeffries, a Democratic congressman from Brooklyn, is among those who is hoping to succeed uh, Nancy Pelosi as top Democrat should she uh, decide to uh, not serve in the next Congress, which nobody knows if she will do that or not, but there seems to be a, a widespread expectation among many that she might not. Um so uh, and uh, there are still, uh, you know, uh, very low proportions of people of color in the Senate, of course. Uh, uh, the, the House, the numbers in the House are somewhat better. And also, I think, you know, it's fair to say that when allegations of sexual impropriety are raised, lawmakers are paying attention. And the reason I bring that up is, I mean, I remember the days when, you know, Strom Thurmond would give a pretty girl a pinch in the elevator and many people would shrug it off saying, oh, oh, that's Strom. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. I remember one time standing outside the Senate chamber after a vote, as you know, the senators stream out of the chamber and get into those banks of elevators. 
And uh, Strom Thurmond had gotten into one elevator. And Barbara Mikulski, who was a Democratic senator from uh, Maryland, uh, comes out of the chamber and is about to step in. And she goes, oh, no, I'm not getting in there alone with you. And she laughed. And a couple of reporters standing there like me laughed. And that's really no laughing matter. Um, That's true. Um, but yes, uh, 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 we all saw what happened to uh, Al Franken when there were allegations of uh, some uh, inappropriate behavior uh, by him, which I believe he denied. Um, but there were a stream of uh, Me Too era uh, resignations and retirements at around that same time. Um, yeah, the uh, again, this is the sort of thing that reporters who covered Congress many years ago, uh, probably uh, many of them saw things happening and, uh, you know, nobody reported on it because it wasn't considered news or it was considered to be a uh, privacy line that uh, journalists wouldn't cross on certain matters. But uh, today, and I think rightfully so, all bets are off along those lines. Did you have favorite senators and members of Congress and I mean, I don't mean, you know, are there ones that you agreed with the most? Uh, more like, you know, they were great sources or they were always honest with you that, you know, people you enjoyed being with. Did you have favorites? I had, I've had lots of favorites. I don't want to talk about people who are my sources. And, of course, almost all of them, I think, were honest with me, I hope, to the degree they could be. Um, but there are a lot of characters uh, who I've covered over the years, and just people who you couldn't help but respect, not in a partisan way, but just for who they were and their experiences. But Bob Dole is among those, uh, a World War II uh, hero who uh, was the longtime uh, leader of Senate Republicans and, of course, was their unsuccessful candidate for president in uh, 1996, just sort of a very wicked uh, sense of humor. Uh, and he could be uh, sharply uh, partisan, but he also knew when it was time to uh, cut a deal. Um, I found Tom Daschle to be a delightful, uh, low-key, approachable uh, uh, person to cover. He was a Democratic senator from South Dakota who became uh, his party's uh, leader in the uh, the late 90s or the early aughts. I get my years uh, mixed up. uh, Harry Reid, of course, uh, just a ball of fire, uh, very partisan, very smart. Uh, very, uh, I wouldn't want to tangle with him. The late Harry Reid, uh, a Democratic senator from Nevada, who was the majority and the minority leader. Um, Mitch McConnell, uh, just a tough, uh, tough leader, uh, strong uh, partisan. Uh, uh, you know, Democrats I know will never forgive him for uh, refusing to even hold hearings when uh, Justice Scalia died in early calendar 2012, 2016, I guess it was. Right. Obama was still president and he, and he, put, and he nominated Merrick Garland. Yes, he did. And uh, it, uh, uh, astonishingly and extraordinarily, uh, uh, McConnell announced that he was not going to hold even hearings, uh, let alone allow a vote on confirming Garland. Instead, he was going to save it for the, leave it for the voters who weren't even voting for another uh, nine months. Um, and then, of course, uh, in uh, late September, then comes Amy Coney year, Barrett, right? That's right. Um, uh, RBG died une- well, not unexpectedly. She'd been ill for a long time, but died and. Uh, uh, McConnell rushed through uh, the uh, nomination and the uh, confirmation of her uh, uh, successor. Let me ask you questions about the two parties' leadership. 
I mean, remembering that both John Boehner and, and then Paul Ryan were savaged within their own caucuses. Could you envision Kevin McCarthy, you know, should the Republicans win the House next month, having to battle with the Jim Jordans and the, and the Matt Gaetz's wing of the party to show who's boss? That can go on, you know, from day one. Uh, it can go on from before day one because, you know, as you know, uh, McCarthy, everyone expects him to become speaker should Republicans win the House. But that means he's going to need 218 votes when the new Congress uh, convenes uh, next uh, January 3rd. And um, as we've seen uh, within both parties, when the when the majority is narrow enough that every vote by a would-be speaker's party matters, members of that party will make demands. And you've got large and growing numbers of very conservative, very militant Republicans I don't know what their demands are going to be in terms of, okay, you've got to promise that we're going to impeach this member of the Biden administration or whatever. Um, And uh, the the demands may come fast and furious. And that's going to be a very difficult uh, uh, balancing act for uh, McCarthy because he's going to have to uh, he's going to have to run that chamber and he's going to have to do it. He can only do it with the support of his uh, Republican conference. And that's uh, – we've seen uh, the Tea Party, the House Freedom Caucus in recent years are very, uh, very difficult uh, groups of conservative Republican uh, lawmakers to manage for a year. And I have no reason to think that that's going to get any easier for him. And and the Democrats, I mean, whether they lose the House this year or not, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, uh, Jim Clyburn, I mean – these people are up there in age. Is it? Are, do you think there may be some demands on the Democrats that it's time for new, fresher leadership? Absolutely. And, of course, we've seen that before the last couple of times uh, that uh, Pelosi uh, was, uh, be, became speaker. Um, there were rumblings, uh, some of them public, uh, among Democrats that it's time for a, a change, time for a new generation. Of course, having some eight, a bunch of 80-somethings are running uh, the House these days. Makes me feel young. Uh, uh, but uh, but beyond that, um, yes. And as I said, Hakeem uh, Je- Jeffries is among those who uh, would love to uh, succeed her. And I'm not sure of his age, but I can't think he's much more than about 50, which to me is very young. And so, yes, I think the generational, the cry for generational change is going to be particularly strong uh, should Pelosi at some point decide that she's either going to not seek, well, that she's not going to seek to leave, leave the party next year if she does that. Let me ask you one final question. Um, in the aftermath of what happened on January 6th, with, with a good portion of Republicans continuing to lie about what happened in the 2020 election, you know, that Joe Biden is not the rightfully elected president, how can, and I don't know how you could even answer this, but, but how can members of Congress ever effectively work together again? That's a good question. And uh, the, 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 the trust, as we've mentioned, as I mentioned, is uh, largely eroded. There are Democrats who bitterly resent, uh, well, almost every Democrat bitterly, bitterly resents the Republicans who voted against certifying uh, Biden's uh, reelection. Um, you know, just hours after the January 6th uh, attack on Congress by Trump supporters, there are Democrats who don't even trust whether cer- certain Republicans who have openly talked about having guns, they don't trust 
these Republicans for safety reasons. That's one of the reasons that uh, for the last uh, year and a half uh, there have been uh, magnetometers that members of members not of, of, of Congress of the House have to walk through to even get on the chamber floor. That the distrust is, is, is that strong. Can you still cut a deal with that person? Uh, yes, but uh, on, a, on a case-by-case basis, there are some Democrats who can uh, barely uh, bring themselves to uh, speak to some members of the other party. Alan Fram spent four decades covering Congress before retiring. Almost, in, almost four almost decades. Almost four Not decades <laughs> covering Congress before retiring in 2022. You know, maybe it's no longer fun. Maybe it's gotten ugly and personal, but... Uh, we'll always have the old days, right? We'll, we'll always have Paris. As long as I can remember them, yeah. <laughs> thanks. Uh, <laughs> wait, what's your name? Oh, yeah, Alan. Alan, thanks so much. <laughs> uh, whoever you are, it's been a pleasure, Ken. Thank you. Those were the days, my friend. We thought they'd never end. We'd sing and dance forever and a day. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at thepoliticaljunkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. And please, please make sure to vote. I'll see you soon. Fight and